You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Arrogant Pride, Man's Pride Opens the Door to Willful Ignorance. Chapters 4 and 5 reveal the judgment of God, followed by chapter 6, the delivering mercy of God. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can register for future modules, study our past modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media where you can watch our live streams at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome this evening to uh, our second week study on uh, the book of Daniel. Let's pray before we start our study this evening. Thank you, Father, for your readiness to uh, encourage us through your word, to teach us, to, to bless us, Lord, and we present ourselves before you to, to be blessed by you, to, to be ministered to into our hearts, to understand more about you, to love you more. Uh, Father, we pray for those that are watching online or listening to a recording, that they too will be blessed as they listen to our teaching this evening. Uh, so we commit ourselves to you, both the hearers and the speakers, in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. Just to a brief recap uh, on what we looked at last week. We said the book of Daniel was divided into two parts. The first six chapters was a narrative they were stories about Daniel and his three friends. The, the second uh, group of uh, six chapters were Daniel's visions. So they're more like uh, prophetic writings. So the first half is a narrative, stories, and the second is uh, prophetic writing. The historical context of, of the whole thing is that Israel is divided into two nations. Uh, Israel and Judah, and uh, Israel has already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, so all, all that Israel is now is the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah. They are, uh, at, at where we pick the story up here, they too have been taken into captivity, and they will remain there for 70 years. In that taking, taking them into captivity, that's when Daniel and his three friends, probably teenage boys, went into captivity into Babylon. Chapter 1, then, that we looked at was a, a, a prologue, really. It gives the setting of the whole story, something of the history of it, and, and just, just getting our minds in, in touch with uh, the story that's going to follow on. In chapter 2, we looked at the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and uh, he makes it very difficult for his magicians and enchanters uh, because he won't even tell them the dream. Uh, I, we don't know. We discuss whether he perhaps forgot it himself or God didn't allow him to remember it. So when he wants the interpretation for the dream, he makes the challenge a little bit harder and says, tell me what the dream is first uh, you know, and then tell me the interpretation. They can't do this. They try and talk their way out of it. And in the end, he says, off with their heads. And of course, that includes poor Daniel and his friends, because he's with this group of people who are, are wise and learned about these things. So Daniel gets his friends to pray to God, and God comes through, as he always does for us, 
and uh, gives him not only the interpretation of the dream, but what the dream actually was. And he goes and uh, he makes a friend then with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is uh, fascinated that this young man has such insight that God is so close to him. The dream, uh, it sets up for the whole story really, because all the revelations, all the visions that Daniel get, it's the same dream again and again and again. He sees a statue, Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue, and it's made of metal, it's made of four different metals, and the head is made of gold, the head and the shoulders, and this represents the, the empire of Babylon. Then he sees below this the second part of the body, the arms and the, the chest, that's made of silver, and that represents the Medo-Persian empire that's gonna rise up after the Babylonian. Then we come down to the loin area, and that's made of bronze, representing the, uh, uh, the Greek period when they have a tremendous empire in the world. And finally, it comes to iron and clay, which is the legs and the toes and the feet, and that represents the Roman empire that flows. So this is the, the vision that the king has, the dream, this is the interpretation that uh, Daniel brings to him. Like I say, the king is impressed and raises him to a high position and uh, Daniel makes sure that his friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they too are raised up into a high position. Chapter 3 doesn't have Daniel in it at all. It has the, uh, his three friends. And we know that some years later, uh, as we read it, we think every event follows on after the other, but that's not strictly true. The first six chapters uh, run all the way through Daniel's life, and the second group of six chapters, seven to 12, they're running parallel at the same time. So it's not chronological that we've got two periods running together in this whole thing. So we see these uh, three friends, uh, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, probably something like 20 years after the event of his dream and the interpretation of his dream. And we see how God wonderfully delivers these uh, three young men from the furnace. We're going to study three further chapters tonight and we'll do what we do. We, uh, I give you a little bit of an introduction and then we will uh, play it. Uh, they're fairly long uh, passages of scripture to read, but we've got a mechanism here and then we can uh, play them for you. Uh, and so you can listen to them. It's important that as we're going to study it, we listen to all of the story. So sometimes I know when you're listening to scripture, your minds can wander. Uh, so I would encourage you just to Try and keep focused. I know minds wander when you listen because mine wander, so I'm just assuming I'm normal. Well, perhaps I'm not normal, uh, but uh, yeah. But if you want to know the story, because I can't explain the whole story again, you've got to be listening when it's, uh, you know, it's spoken, and then it'll all, it'll all fit into place uh, a lot clearer. So, um, th so we'll listen to it, and then I'll just draw out some points from the story. There's so much in there really that, you know, you could be studying it forever, but we've got limited time. But I'll draw out what I think are some of the important uh, issues that it covers in each chapter. Chapter four then, um, it's Nebuchadnezzar's second dream and God's judgment of him. In chapter five, we see God judging again, and this time he's judging Belshazzar's life. And then in chapter six is when Daniel is cast into the lion's den, probably the story we're all very familiar with, 
uh, of the whole book of Daniel. So that's where we're going. So uh, I've called this evening's study um, Arrogant Pride. And so a lot of the stuff I'm going to be talking about tonight is about pride. And uh, we're going to see in these two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, two very arrogant men and uh, how God deals with them. And he deals with them quite differently. Pride's a terrible thing. We would hate to think that we were proud as Christians. It's an ugly sin, really. And so um, when we see it in others, we recognise it. But perhaps we don't recognise it in our own lives. And uh, it's repugnant to God. It's one of those sins that he says, when I see it, I resist the person who's manifesting that. That's a serious thing, isn't it? We like to think, even though we are sinning and slipping sometimes, that God's arms are always open to us, but we get a picture with pride that he's resisting us. He will have nothing to do with it. He's, he's quite stern about, stern about the whole thing. So in our first lesson, then, we're going to study or look at Nebuchadnezzar's pride, and then it'll run on to uh, Belshazzar's pride as well. Uh, Belshazzar is not his son. As we read this, it sounds like Nebuchadnezzar is the father and Belshazzar is the son. He's not actually, he's his grandson. And if you were to study the different uh, heirs to the throne, there's, there's a period of nine years between the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and the start of Belshazzar's reign. And in this nine-year period, there were three other kings. Uh, and so I believe he is the uh, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar on his daughter's side. That's uh, just by the way, not important really, is it? Um, so we see these men, both of these men, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Belshazzar, they're both filled with pride. It's very difficult, you know, in life sometimes to be promoted and not be proudful to keep oneself humble, to be a servant leader is not easy uh, because we want to succeed and when we do succeed, <laughs> that fills us with pride. So in some ways, God wants to give us success, but then it can be counterproductive in giving us the success that we, we want to, to do well in something, to be recognised as doing well. It can have an adverse effect. So it's something that I think possibly successful people, uh, Christians are, are going to worry about it more than others, to walk in humility, to walk uh, recognising this is God working through my life and it has probably uh, little to do with me. The vast majority of the success I'm enjoying is down to God himself. God warns both of these kings. Uh, the first one, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he warns in a dream. Uh, again, another dream. And uh, Daniel is the only one, again, who can interpret the dream. And then he warns uh, Belshazzar in a different way, but a vision. He comes and puts a vision on the wall. And then he, again, doesn't know the interpretation of the vision. So we wheel Daniel in again, who 
brings the, the revelation of what the writing on the wall is all about. But we'll look into this in more detail. Both kings are to humble themselves before God and both refuse to humble themselves. They are so full of their, themselves. They're arrogant people, full of pride. So we will discover as we listen to the story that Nebuchadnezzar is stricken down um, with madness, which is scary as we just let our imaginations run through this story. He becomes like a beast living in the fields. It's a picture of all tyrants or leaders when they become really powerful they become like beasts themselves. God's idea of rulership and being above things, he gives the picture that, to Adam and Eve that they were to rule over the creation, all the animals and, and, and so on like this. They were to be godly leaders in it, rulers in it. But when evil men become that, they become like the beasts themselves, it says. And so this is how God punishes um, Nebuchadnezzar. He punishes him not to hurt him, he punishes him so that he would repent and come back to himself. See, God has to deal with us. We don't like this when God has to deal with us, but in his mercy, he deals with us. In his graciousness, he doesn't let us keep running on and making a mess of things. He's, he deals with us and it can be quite painful to bring us back to the place where we function better for him. He humbles himself and uh, he's brought back into humanity for a season, for seven years. He's living there with the wild beasts, but then God brings him back into humanity. So God is merciful and very gracious uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar, it doesn't go quite so well for him. Uh, he doesn't humble himself at all under God and he is assassinated and that is the end of the Babylonian Empire. With the death of this man, uh, Belshazzar, it's the end of the Babylonian Empire and then we know that the Medo-Persians come in. Chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous, 
The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze, in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. 
His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Interesting, the, the whole story really, and God's going into great detail to explain everything he's doing, what he expects, what he expects of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, how he expects him to change. He talks about a, a giant tree that, that goes all the way up into the heavens. He says a messenger comes, a holy one. So he sees an angel appear and uh, uh, he chops the tree down. He puts it in chains, but he doesn't uh, remove the root. He leaves the root, the stump there. And of course, this is an interpretation that the whole thing will be restored. Poor old Daniel, he's got to tell the king this. <laughs> he says, I'd rather be telling your enemies this than telling you this. And so he's, he's still a little bit apprehensive because although he's um, helped Nebuchadnezzar before, he still sees this very arrogant, proud man and uh, life is very cheap. So anyway, he's, he's bold, isn't he? We know something of the courage of Daniel to speak out. And uh, Daniel confirms everything uh, that the king has said and he explains it. And he says, what God is seeking to do to you, he's seeking to humble you. He wants you to walk in humility until you recognize that God is sovereign over everything. We believe that? Then we would never worry ever again. You have opportunity to be anxious about things, I understand that, but really as we come back to God and focus on him and know his sovereignty over everything, we have to focus on that. We have to think, Lord, I don't know what you're doing and it feels really scary at this time, but I'm trusting in you and you're sovereign in every situation and you know perfectly how to deal with everything. I need not be anxious for anything. I put my faith, my trust in you. Daniel tells the king, uh, God will know when you're humble. There will be signs. He says, you're one, you'll have to renounce your sin of arrogance and pride. You'll have to cease your wickedness, he says. This has to stop. And you will need to start helping the oppressed in your nation. You're a tyrant a bigot, an arrogant man who thinks you can get away with anything you want. Well, you can't, and God is dealing with you. Then he says, if you do this, your prosperity will continue. You can come back and step back into what you had before. 
God's patient, isn't he? Did you hear or recognize how long he gave him to make his mind up? He said he was a year. After receiving this interpretation of the vision and the dream, it said a whole year passed. And then it picks up the story a year later and he's walking around on his roof and he's arrogantly saying how wonderful he is and, and what a great uh, empire he has because of his. And God says, oh, I've had enough of this now. I'm just going to stop this. This isn't going to happen anymore. And so God uh, intervenes as he said he would and he brings judgment on the whole situation. This reminds us that God is patient. You've discovered this already though, haven't you? I mean, sometimes we do some silly things over and over and over again. And we say, make the same mistakes. And God patiently just keeps reminding us and reminding us and reminding us. But in the end, he will deal with it because he loves us too much to leave it just going on like that. Peter reminds us this in uh, 2 Peter 3.9. It says that he, God, is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'm sure you've asked the question, how long will this period of grace last? It's gone on for 2,000 years. The early Christians thought it will just be a short period of time and then Jesus will come again. And here we are thousands of years later because God is patient, drawing people, giving people an opportunity to come to him. Another lesson that we can uh, learn from this is those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's clear. But the, the opposite is true as well. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't that what Philippians teaches us? Jesus Christ, who is in heaven, comes to earth, takes on human form, the form of a man, makes himself a servant, uh, empties himself of himself and takes the lowest position and the position of death. And it says, therefore, God highly exalts him. I know how to get to the highest position in the kingdom. Isn't that wonderful? It's a secret. You know it now, don't you? You take the humblest position and that's how you become exalted. But you mustn't take the humble position to be exalted. Oh! See, that doesn't work either. It has to be genuine humility. That's probably why it took so long. You see, perhaps uh, Nebuchadnezzar thought after a year, all right, okay, I can, I can do this. And God goes, no, you can't. He sees into our hearts, you see. He sees what's real in us. Sometimes we convince ourselves something is true, but it's not really true. We want it to be true. But he waits and he waits and he waits until it's true. And then he steps in because he can see the truth that's in his heart. It's the theme of the New Testament. 1 Peter 5 and 6 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. That's God's business. God raises people and puts people down. This is what we've been learning through this whole book. Did you notice that the tree reaches up into heaven. Did that remind you of something else that reached up into heaven? Remember when they built the Tower of Babel? That was the same thing, wasn't it? They built it so they could reach right into the heavens, as it were, and then they would, they would think how great we are. We can do anything we want. And God actually said, 
If I leave them in this state and they get together, there isn't anything that's beyond them. See, God made this very creative, tremendous ability to understand and to work things out. So, yeah, very, very reminiscent of the Tower of Babel. They wanted to reach heaven there. Um, both of these examples, they reveal the, the nature of pride in the human heart. But they also reveal God's reaction to pride. I've said this, he hates it. He, he strongly does. When, when men self-exalt themselves, God says, this isn't good for them or anyone else. The Lord in heaven cuts them down to size. Hmm. Isn't it interesting, the Tower of Babel was built in the same place that this tree, tree grew. It was in Babylon. It's the same place. And of course, we know what Babylon re represents for us. It represents corruption in the world. Um, never name anything Babylon, please don't. Uh, uh, any films you see that are entitled Babylon or books Babylon, not, not worth reading really, or maybe to, to illuminate some truth about how evil and corrupt the world can become. The story raises the issue also for us of the relationship between sickness and sin. We don't like to think of that. In the West, we think we're above that and beyond that. But God's judgment of Nebuchadnezzar resulted in mental sickness. It could be, couldn't be called anything else. The man lost his mind uh, to go and live in the way that he did. He, he just he became mentally sick. And it's interesting that when he actually looks to God, his mental sickness falls away from him. Cutting himself off from God, walking in his arrogant sin of pride, he becomes ill. Turning back to God, he becomes well. Daniel 4 and 34. At the end of that time, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. We don't like connecting sickness and sin together generally in the West, not even in the church. But we've got to be open to ponder the possible connection between the two. I won't say any more because people can get very upset uh, when we consider that issue. But this passage of Scripture definitely encourages us to possibly do that. Another point. Having been severely humbled, the king never calls into question the character of God. He says, it's everything that God has done to me is quite justified. This is amazing, isn't it? He says, I praise and I exalt and I glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right in all, and all his ways are just. What a statement for the man to make. Everything that God has done for me, he's, he's taken all this wealth from me. He's taken my mind from me. He's taken my humanity from me. He's caused me to live like an animal, wild. It says, like, his hair was like 
bird's feathers and his, his, his fingers were like talons and filthy, I'm sure. And uh, he said it was just. What God did was just. He humbly confessed that God's punishment was just. He never exceeded the punishment for the crime. Regardless how severe it may appear to the carnal mind. This is the reason that only Jesus could die for us on the cross. Because it had to be someone who never sinned to fully understand that the punishment that Christ received was 100% justified. Because of our carnal thinking, we would say, oh, that's far too much punishment for that crime. Surely Jesus wouldn't have to die that terrible, awful death and be separated from his father. But Jesus, because he was sinless and the son of God, he knew what God asked of him was perfectly just. Perfectly just. So only Christ could die for us. A man could never die for us. I have to be careful here. Um, I'm doing three chapters in two sessions. Um, let me just do a little bit more of this one. I'll have to cut it off then. We'll have a little break and then uh, I'll finish off uh, the next chapter. So we're moving on to chapter five. We've seen how God has dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. Now we get the other side, how God deals with uh, Belshazzar. He's uh, Babylon's last monarch. When he falls, when God puts him down, it's finished. There is no more Babylon. God is uh, fulfilling the next part of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. The, remember the head and the shoulders of gold and now uh, the, the chest and arms of silver are going to come in the, the Medo-Persian Empire. He again, Belshazzar, has this great feast. And what's the great feast for? Not to honour others, but to honour himself. To parade about, to say how wonderful he is and how great his empire is and, and everything else. <laughs> we have to be careful why we do things even in the kingdom of God. Do we do it to be seen and recognised and appreciated and exalted? Or we do, we do it because we want to love and serve and, and minister to others. Uh, preferring others to ourselves, lifting others up while we take this servant position. He's showing off, of course, his royal power. In the midst of the feast, uh, while he's praising the gods of all the metals and all the material things, uh, there's writing on the wall. The finger of God has come. It was the finger of God that gave us the Ten Commandments, wasn't it, as we read. Uh, have you ever wondered what, that, what that's all about? There you go. That's your homework. What's it all about? What's this finger of God thing all about, really? So he sees the finger of God again writing on the wall that very night. We'll listen to the, uh, the recording, I think, when we come back after the break. That very night, he loses his life. The city falls, but with the city, the empire falls as well, completely overtaken by Darius the Mede. 
So at that point, we'll call a halt to this uh, part and um, we'll come back after the break and we'll listen to chapter five and launch into that. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. 
you praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Parson. This is what these words mean. Mini, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Daniel's a lot older now, and he's a lot bolder. Did you notice? Uh, he isn't so apologetic as he was with Nebuchadnezzar and... Um, uh, contrite a little bit, and then, of course, with he just he gives him both barrels, really, doesn't he? Explaining you should know better, because you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. What is it with you? It appears from this that some people be, can become so hardened that God can't touch them. Uh, sin has the effect of this. If we continue and continue, I'm I'm talking about Christians inner sin. Now you think, do Christians do this? Yeah, they do. And if you continue, then God stops offering you the grace to change. This seems to be the situation that this king had got himself into. Uh, uh, God wouldn't be any different from Nebuchadnezzar with Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a heart to change. Uh, God could see this and God offered him time and offered him opportunity. This man's heart is so hardened that God knows if I waited forever, he's not going to change. See, God knows that. He knows the end from the beginning. In his foreknowledge, we don't know the foreknowledge, but God knows that. So judgment falls upon him. The writing on the wall. We use that expression, don't we? In our English language, we say the writings, the writings on the wall. You're going to get the sack. The writings, the writings on the wall. I looked up some of these uh, phrases that we have. Uh, ultimately, there's about 85 of these different biblical phrases used quite commonly in the English language. Let there be light. We talk about forbidden fruit. Uh, by the sweat of your brow, am I your brother's keeper? the land of Nod, and uh, fire and brimstone. They're just a few of the expressions, that are biblical expressions that have found their way into our English language. And the writing on the wall is one of them and comes from, obviously, Daniel chapter 5. God's prophetic message then is written by the finger of God. Many, many tekel you fasten. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. God has judged. He has made a decision. He judged for Nebuchadnezzar. He said, the day that you look to the heavens and repent, I'll give you back everything that was yours before. This offer isn't given to him because God knows the outcome. You have been weighed, he said, in the scales and found wanting in your life. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
it's going to be the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. A declaration of divine condemnation. God has tolerated pride and rebellion long enough. The time has come for justice. Such a story reminds us that God will judge a fallen world. People live as though it's never going to be judged. Sometimes Christians live as though they're not going to be judged. It will be judged. Maybe you say, well, we're trusting in, in the Lord for our salvation, so he's not going to judge our sin. Listen, one day when we stand before him, all of our lives will come before us. Everything. That which has been repented of and dealt with by the blood, that's, that's dealt with, I understand that, and we'll never stand condemned for the sins that we've committed. But there are things that God's got to bring to light. There's things he's got to talk to us about. Things he's got to deal with so that when we pass from this world to the next, everything will be dealt with. Everything will be cleared. You won't carry anything with you into the next world, but there's going to be a day of reckoning. It says in Romans 1 and 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness uh, uh, godlessness, sorry, and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God sees everything that we do and God records everything. He remembers everything that we do. During Belshazzar's great feast, it appears that things come to a head. Uh, God has patiently lived with this. He brings in the... Uh, the goblets and the other things from the temple. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, he took captives, but he also took things from the temple. And they've, they've treasured them to some extent. And now he's brought them in uh, to his great feast and he's using them to mock God in honour of him, as it were. And he, he uses the vessels to praise, it says, the gods of silver and the gods of gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. All the material things that you see, he's attributed him to himself and he's giving praise to himself. God sees this as simply rebellion, blasphemy to God to take his goblet and to praise his God with the goblets that were made only to praise God with. It's interesting, as pride exalts a man, he's more willing to prostrate himself before idols. Isn't that weird? It's as though we won't worship God, we think we're so important, and yet we would create an idol in our own lives to worship. Isn't that odd? We don't worship ourselves, we worship whatever. We build something and we say, look how great I am. Worship me, this is the idol in my life. Very strange, very strange. Because of sin uh, in, in the human's life, it induces, as it were, an ignorance to the truth. Not just blinding but the truth gets twisted I think I shared with you previously the devil thinks he wins he does he wouldn't keep going otherwise would he he really believes he's going to defeat God 
somehow God's creation are all going to turn to him. How can you get to that place? You see, if you lie and lie and lie and lie, you actually believe it's the truth. You deceive yourself. And so if we take the word of God and we don't want to believe it and we just keep saying the opposite, it becomes impossible to believe what God has put in his word. We put ourselves in a very dangerous place. If you adamantly refuse what, to believe what God has said, then God doesn't allow you to believe what he has said. You reach a point where the lie becomes a truth. It's a serious thing. I don't believe in healing. I don't believe that God wants to heal the sick. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Well, God says, all right then. Believe what you want to believe. And I won't reveal the truth to you because you adamantly will not believe. We need to be humble when it comes to the word of God. We might not understand why it works sometimes or doesn't work sometimes or why this or what. We might not understand it, but we can't bend the truth to become a lie. Otherwise, it becomes the truth to us. And we've lost something. We've lost the truth. And if we've lost the truth, we can never be free. We bind ourselves by the lies that we believe. And we live in poverty as a result of it. What should be obvious is no longer obvious to us. It's not, we don't see it. When we choose to believe a lie, God hides the truth from us. Isn't this what Romans chapter 1 tells us? It talks about people who would not worship the Creator but worship only the created things. It says this in Romans 1, 21 and 23. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They knew him, but they wouldn't worship him as God. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. <laughs> See, by not laying hold of the truth and believing it, we become darkened on the inside. We can't see it. It becomes dark to us. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Then in that passage in uh, Romans chapter 1, it says God gave them over. It says first God gave them over to sexual sin. Then God gave them over to perverted sexual sin. And then it says God gave them over to all forms of wickedness and evil. It was, it was a progressive thing that God gave us over if we didn't want to do what God chose that we should do, live the way that we should live, believe the things that we should believe. We should be very careful about willful ignorance. This was Belshazzar's problem. Willful ignorance. And now he's cut off from God. <laughs> While God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, we all know that verse of scripture, <laughs> his mercy does have limits. Of course it must do. Otherwise it's, it's ridiculous. 
God just can't be 100% merciful and nothing else. There has to be a limit to it. There has to be the alternative to what is the mercy of God. Hebrews warns that if a believer doesn't, goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Many people would say they are. Uh, a Christian can lose his salvation based simply on that verse alone. But all he can expect is the fearful expectation of judgment. Hmm. You've got to ask yourself the question, if we take, for example, Ananias and Sapphira, that's found in Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, that verse. Ponder a minute, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember God judges them and they drop down dead in his presence. Ask yourself the question, were they lost forever? Or did the judgment of God mean he would remove them from the scene of time so they could do themselves no more harm or the infant baby church that was growing up around them any more harm? God strikes them both dead. But we don't know their eternal destiny. That's in the hands of God. So God can remove anyone from the scene of time if it's in his in his purposes, if they're doing themselves or others harm, God can remove them so that his plans are not thwarted. God removed Belteshazzar. We move now on to the uh, sixth chapter this evening. Um, Daniel in the lion's den. Um, do I need to play it? Yes, of course I'll play the story again because we all have to hear the story. Um, I'll do what I normally do. I'll give a little bit of an intro. Um, this time, uh, it's a repeat of chapter three, actually, chapter six, uh, whereas it was these three young men that were being persecuted because they wouldn't bow to an idol and, and honour the king as a god. It's now Daniel's turn. He refuses to worship the king as a god. Remember, set himself up with the statue and everything and said, you're to worship me. So like his friends, he is sentenced to death. Um, under the Babylonian law, this was different from the Medo-Persian law. The, the king was supreme. The king could say anything you want and do anything you want. Off with his head, off with her head, and that was done. No one argued that. It seems with the Medo-Persian laws, um, a bit more of a constitutional thing about it, once a law was established, it became the law, and it became impossible to change the law. So it's a different way of ruling, but, but this is why they say we cannot change the law. Once you've said it and declared it, it has to be, because we've given thought and consideration to making this law, it now needs the law, otherwise it makes nonsense of us. We see our governments doing U-turns, don't we? They make laws, then they decided this wasn't the smartest law. We'll go around and not do this one again. Well, if they lived in the times of the Medo-Persians, they couldn't have done that. They couldn't have just reversed the law because they had given sufficient time and consideration to make it law. They believed the gods had helped them make the laws. And so it was established. And they tricked um, Darius into establishing this law that everyone should worship him. And once it was in place... He couldn't change it. He was stuck with it. So he's thrown into 
alliance then. But of course, we all know the story. I'm not letting the cat out the bag, am I? God delivers him. God delivers him. There isn't anyone who doesn't know that part of it. Um, like his friends, the king then uh, exalts Daniel and, uh, and wants to just give him so much and praise his God for, for who he is. Remember, I've said, I think I told you this earlier, this is happening, he's about 80-odd years of age now when this has taken place. Uh, remember, the first six chapters are chronologically written from when he's taken into captivity to the end of his life. Then when we start next week on chapter 7, we start again at the beginning and we move through the whole of his life. They run parallel together. So he's put in the lion's den, he's about 80, 85 years of age. He's now in service of Darius the Mede. Um, you might think as you get older, things will get easier with God. Or well, they don't. Sorry. They actually get harder. They get harder because God he takes us higher and he's fine-tuning us more. Down at the bottom here, it was easy. Stuff got just dealt with, dealt with, dealt with. But now it's a lot tougher. I often think of poor old Abraham, you know, all that he's been through. And now at this ripe old age, 100 and, I don't know, 15 or whatever he was, 120, I don't know, 15 probably. He says, take your son now and kill him. Really? Really? Oh, yes. I've kept the best till last, you see. God keeps the best, sorry, keeps the best till last. So the best is yet to come in your life. The best challenges, the best refining, the best everything is yet to come. Although the kings and empires change, we see three different em empires, as it were, or emperors rising up, but Daniel is there consistently all the time, isn't he? He's never moved from office. See, God puts him there. He's God's spokesman in the world. And so he remains as the empires come and go and the kings come and go. He remains and he's moved on to the next one and the next one and the next one. 20 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next thirty days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, 
he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next thirty days anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Chapter 6 then is all about God delivering again. The delivering God that we serve. But it's also about his tremendous courage and faith. I mean, knowing what was going to happen. He knew the law could not be changed, even though he was really, it seems, a, a real friend of the king, and the king would have done anything to save him. He goes home as is normal, and he throws open his window, and he prays. Of course, it was a big setup, wasn't it? How courageous, though. You say, well, he was getting old. I tell you, it still takes a lot of courage, whether you're old or young to know that the things that you're choosing to do, they're going to lead to certain death. He knew that these steadfast prayers would cost him his life. Now when Daniel learned that the decrees had been published, 
Anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. This is 6 and 10. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Nothing changed. He was not intimidated one little bit. I'm not saying there wasn't fearing in his heart, but he wasn't going to change his course of action. He was going to trust his God. In a way, just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said, listen, if we die, we die. And I'm sure Daniel didn't say that, but the same thought running through his mind, if I die, I die, but I'll do no less than my friends have done. So Daniel remains silent before his accusers. He doesn't try to defend himself to the king. The king knows what's going on, I'm sure he's wise. But he doesn't defend himself. He's a type of Christ, you see. Before his accusers, Christ never defended himself. He went on the route that God had prepared for him. Daniel was walking this same route. It says in 1 Peter 2 and 23, when they hurled their insults at him, that's Christ, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And by so doing, he accomplished salvation for us. Another point we see here is that of the angel. It is the angel that deals with the lions. Would you like to see an angel? Careful, I'm setting you up. You know I am, don't you? You see, to, to see an angel, you've got to get yourself in a real sticky spot, haven't you? You know what I mean? Peter saw an angel, didn't he? He was awaiting execution, possibly the next day. And the angel came as the church were praying for him and released him. Um, who else? Paul saw an angel, didn't he? Remember on the boat when he was nearly shipwrecked and destroyed and he was being taken as a prisoner. He said, an angel appeared to me and spoke to me the other night. And I'll tell you what he said. Or Mary. Well, it would have been fine, the angel appearing, but he told her, you're a virgin and you're going to have a child. And no one's going to believe a word you're saying. And I can't even imagine they would for one minute. And what did she say to the angel? Be unto me as you have said. Let's get on with this. But all the shame and the embarrassment and the insults and uh, possible death, it was a death sentence again, you see, to do that. She could have been taken before the elders and they dealt with her. Moses, Elijah, Balaam, David, all of these angels appeared in very, very difficult situations. The angels, they sometimes came to bring messages from God or they just came to protect. We know that verse in Hebrews 1 and 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I wish we could see a few more today. Um, they're still in operation. Sometimes you think, well, do we still have them? Yes, they're here. They're just not here. 
but I'm sure they're busy all over the world doing God's call. As I said, sometimes they just bring messages and sometimes they protect the people of God. But we have them in the Old and in the New Testament. In this passage, I don't know if you notice, they use the word signs and wonders as well. That's what Darius says. He says, this is a sign and a wonder of God. Through the scriptures, we see that God advances his work always with, with signs and wonders. Isn't that what we want to see in the church today? We want to see God come with some signs and wonders. We want to see the hand of God in our midst again. We want to hear of miracles. We want to see them. We want to see the, the miraculous power of God. Not that we're overtly just running after the miracles, but we want to see God manifest himself again. Darius recognised that this was nothing less than the work of God. This was God. Daniel 6, 25-27 says, The King Darius wrote to all the people, the nation, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree. Now, <laughs> this is another decree that can't be changed. It's good, isn't it? It can work for your advantage as well. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. The only trouble with this, you can't legalise Christianity. The church tried to do this, didn't it, early on, you know, when it became a state religion. You can't do this. You can't order people to worship God or have faith in God. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Hmm. Think he had faith in God? Think we'll see him in the next world? Think he'll be with God? I think, I think he will. I think Nebuchadnezzar will as well. Two more characters you can meet. Finally, um, we've got this thing called common grace. Um, it's, it's an interesting feature that this man who is not in covenant with God, this Darius man, he's really upset about the fact that Daniel is facing this awful thing. He can't sleep. He can't even eat. He doesn't want anyone to entertain him. He's perplexed by the whole thing. We call this common grace. It's like we expect the grace. This is, we are children of God. We expect the grace of God to be operating in our lives. But for those that are outside the kingdom, God still operates his grace. It's called common grace. And he does it all the time in people's lives. He's sleepless, he fasts. His conscience is burdened. Paul tells us, to pray for our kings and those who have authority over us. What are we asking God to do? To show them his common grace. I don't think he had to show our queen common grace, do you? I think she was thoroughly born again. She had a relationship with the living God. I don't doubt that for one minute. So it wasn't common grace that he extended to her. It was 
It was covenant grace. And uh, yeah, I'm just impressed uh, with her 70 years on the throne, really. Now, whether you're a royalist or a republican or an indifferent, it doesn't really matter. You've just got to honour when the, the life of God, the power of God, the keeping of God, the grace of God is on someone's life and just acknowledge it. And to some extent, um, she's something of a sign and wonder to me that with all the difficulties and the hardships, she's been so faithful and diligent, uh, walked with such integrity, knew what to say and what not to say, just, just was an example of a godly woman. I was looking at this on Sunday and I was reading uh, uh, Pro uh, Proverbs 31, talking about the virtuous woman, and so many things that I saw in there it's just her life. I just think, you're fantastic, God. It would be wonderful for kings and queens like these kings to acknowledge the living God. Make such a difference in the nation. They're held in such a position of authority and power. You might say, well, all that's waned over the years, but those that have government over us, perhaps we should be praying for them more and the influence they can have in our nation. Uh, we hear of all the criticisms and we join in with it and we write them off as well, don't we? And sometimes they do go beyond. Um, but really we should find ourselves praying that the grace of God, be it common or other, uh, is upon their lives, as Paul encourages us to do. So we come to the end of uh, the first six chapters and uh, yeah, I'm uh, excited where we've got to uh, in this, uh, the narrative. So we have to dig a little bit harder next time. We're getting into the prophetic visions and uh, I hope we don't fall out on this. I don't plan to. Um, I'm not hard and fast about anything really. I generally put things before you and uh, I don't stamp my impression upon it um, as some might, but um, yeah, there will be optional things that you either believe or don't believe, but we'll unfold it as we go through those six chapters uh, starting next week. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can partner with Arise Ministry by making a secure online donation. You can also follow Arise Ministry on social media now at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.